Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 18 and 19. This is the word of the Lord. Let all who have ears to hear, hear. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Amen. Father, again, we would ask that you would be gracious to meet with us this morning, that you would open our hearts to your word, that you would teach us, Father, by your spirit of truth, that we would be transformed from within, from this new mind that you've given us, Lord, that we would be renewed in the spirit of our minds, not conformed to this world, but ever more transformed to be like your glorious Son. We pray it for your sake, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been together in Romans chapter 8, and uh, I so appreciated the last couple of weeks in Ephesians 3 with Pastor Stan. Um, we uh, will dovetail in with some of that message this morning by God's grace. Um, this is the Word of God, and He speaks with one voice, so His Word always supports his word. It, it corroborates the word of God and it fills out our understanding of spiritual truth. Last time in Romans 8, we were talking about suffering and specifically the sweetness of suffering. All Christians, those who are in Christ, those who are filled with the Spirit of God, are those who are partakers of the inheritance of Christ. We are partakers of his life. We are partakers of his death. We are partakers of his resurrection. And we are partakers of his sufferings. And we saw that in the suffering, there is a sweetness that is to be seen in that suffering, which is namely this, the fact that if you do suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ, for the sake of righteousness, by simply being light that shines in a dark world and in your own dark flesh, you know that you belong to Him. That's a wonderful evidence that you are His. You are a, a son of God. You are one who is led by the Spirit of God. You are one who cries out in your heart, Abba, Father, Daddy, because you now are a new relationship to Him. And when sufferings come, those pressures and trials of life, your instinct now not always immediately, but the instinct of the new person in Christ, new creation in Christ, is to cry out to Him. And so in our suffering, wonderfully we find the Lord. We find that He Himself bears us up. We find that He Himself is producing His own character of holiness within us. And we rejoice and can rejoice in those truths. This morning, we are going to start thinking about another aspect of the inheritance, which is the future glory that is to be revealed in all the sons of God. And I think it ties in well with last week, because last week we were looking at the dimensions of the love of God. We were looking at the, the breadth, the, the width, the length, the depth, and the height, all the different dimensions of the love of God and so the future glory could be classified under the heading of the height of the love of God. And we want to give our attention to that. Not only does God justify the sinner and create a saint, but He sanctifies him in this life. 
He separates him in practice more and more from his sin. Yes, he has a perfect standing already with God in Christ. He is justified. He is declared right. All his sins have been put away. They will never be brought up again. And now he is sanctifying us in practice. Now he is separating us from our sin. In other words, creating us to be more and more holy in our practice, in our walk. But he doesn't stop there. Ultimately, he will glorify us one day because that is the completion of the package of salvation which he has granted us and promised us in Christ. So we want to understand what the scriptures have to say about this future glory that is to be revealed. What is this glory that is to be revealed and and how does a deep contemplation of that glory right now help us in the daily trials of our lives? These texts in Romans 8, verses 18 and 19, I believe, answer those questions. So let's look together at verse 18 and ask for the Lord's blessing as he leads us this morning. Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The first word that Paul uses there for consider is the the Greek word that means to reckon. It means to think on and to conclude. You could also say it means to calculate, to meditate on something. In other words, it's not a, a cursory glance at a truth, but it's a deep consideration of that truth. And what is it that Paul is considering or reckoning that we also ought to consider ourselves? Well, it is this, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, when Paul says the sufferings of this present time, we know from the immediate context that he's speaking of suffering with Christ. That's where we have been in verse 17 immediately prior to this And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, since indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Suffering simply because we are, again, light that exposes the darkness of the world and the darkness of our own flesh. And the darkness hates to be exposed. It recoils at the light, but it also attacks the light, as we saw Those sufferings can also take various forms, can't they? And we saw that the suffering may take the form of various kinds of loss. It could be loss of reputation as you are slandered and vilified. It could be a loss of income because you've lost your job or opportunities in a business community. It could be a a loss of freedom through incarceration or even exile from a land as we saw with the Hebrews. It could be uh, a loss of property. It could be a loss of life, even. These are the sufferings of Christ. It's a spectrum, but everyone, everyone who is a Christian will suffer for the cause of Christ. But Paul also, I believe, has a broader view of the sufferings that he speaks of here in verse 18. The sufferings that would include the results of sin, Uh, suffering that everyone in the human race would understand something of. Pain and sorrow, tears and sadness, sickness, disease, death. All of those things, I believe, are encompassed in this idea of suffering, but primarily the sufferings of Christ. And you could say that it's all of the sufferings from the curse of sin that we have experienced since the time of the fall. And then Paul uses this phrase, the the sufferings of this present time. Paul is speaking here of time. He he uses the Greek word uh, for chronos in the English. And that's something that could be a large amount of time. It could also be a small amount of time. But in the Scripture, this word is used synonymously with the word age or eon. Let me give you an example. In Luke chapter 18, um, Peter is saying, Lord, we have left all to follow you. And the implicit question is, well, what shall we receive for our great loss? And so he said to them in verse 29, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God 
who shall not receive many times more in this present time, that's chronos, and in the age to come, eternal life. That's eon. So this present time and in the age to come. Paul here is really setting forth before us a timeline, a divine timeline for all of human history. Within the divine chronology, in macro terms, you could say that we have two main categories. We have this present time and we have the age to come. Or as the scripture puts it elsewhere, we have this age and the age to come. The present time is the current age that we live in, and it's marked by peculiar things. One is it's time, not eternity. This age is a a period of time. We exist in time because God has created time for us. But the age to come is an eternal period. It, It exists outside of time. It's the realm where God dwells. This present time is also marked by the presence of sin and death whereas the age to come has neither. So in short, Paul is not just talking about his own lifetime here. Paul is talking about the entire period of history from the fall of man in the garden all the way till the second advent, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the world doesn't know anything about this divine timeline, do they? For the world, all they have is to live in the present. Their whole life is wrapped up in this time. They're not promised tomorrow, and so their motto is, let's eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There is no truth or life or hope beyond the grave, but for the Christian brothers and sisters, this life is only preparatory for the life that is to come, the eternal life of the ages And so Paul is now setting up a comparison for us in this verse. And he says that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy. The word he uses there is a word that means to have weight. The sufferings of this time do not have weight. To be compared with is in the New King James, but that's added for clarity. Actually, in the Greek, it just says the sufferings of this present time not weighty towards the glory which shall be revealed in us. So what is Paul doing here? He's giving us an image of a scale or a balance. And he's saying, on the one side of the scale, add up all of the sufferings of this present time. Take all of your sorrows, all of your disappointments, all of your hurt, all of your injustice, and pile it onto that one side of the scale. But not only that, now take all of the sufferings of all of the saints who have ever lived from the beginning of history and pile them on that side of the scale. Now on the other side of the scale, place the glory that is to be revealed in us. And what you will find is that the scale is completely tilted in the favor of glory. Glory referring to honor, praise, exaltation. It can also refer to speaking good of somebody, a good opinion of somebody. It also refers to splendor and magnificence, excellence, and brightness. So Paul calculated this balance. He reckoned it. And we see that elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We read this last time two weeks ago, but just To refresh on this, 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You see, Paul didn't just glance at eternal things, eternal truth spiritual truth, the Word of God. He spent time pondering these truths. He meditated on them. He considered them. He reckoned them and calculated them. And it's as we do the same thing, brothers and sisters, we make this reckoning on a regular basis 
here in this particular context about the glory to be revealed, about something of the heights of the love of God that he will reveal to his own. And it's as we do that that our sufferings are actually working out for us an eternal weight of glory on this scale. In other words, the scale gets tilted heavier and heavier on the side of the glory in our minds. That's the reality already. The problem is, do we always see it that way? This is very diagnostic for us, isn't it, saints? How often do we give serious consideration to the things of the Lord, to His Word? Or are we so consumed with the temporary, the things that are seen, the allures and attractions of this life that we really just give fleeting glances and occasional thought to the Word of God? See, the conclusion of a spiritually mature person, in this case the Apostle Paul, who is also speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit, is this. The scales are weighted completely in the favor of glory, future glory. So if our sufferings in this world, as we think about them on a personal level, seem like the scales are tilted on the suffering side and not enough on the glory, that tells us that we are spending too much time looking at ourselves and not enough time looking at this glory to be revealed. The Lord wants us to meditate on these truths and he will cause the scales to tip properly as they are in fact tilted. Paul is very pastoral. I love that. He knows that Christians will be discouraged about the sufferings of this life. He himself was no stranger to suffering and suffering for Christ on a large scale. We know from many scriptures what that looks like. But Paul had a unique position as well. The Lord gave him visions of heaven itself. You remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when Paul is caught up to the third heaven and he sees visions of the glory of God. Not everyone has seen those visions. Paul did. And he knew that, well, the Lord knew that that would be an opportunity, an occasion for boasting. So he gave him that thorn in the flesh to keep him humble, to stay dependent on the Lord and on his grace at all times. But the point is, if a man like Paul got a glimpse of this glory to be revealed, do you think that he understood that the sufferings of this time were worth it in comparison with this glory? Absolutely. That's why he endured. He endured because he knew. He knew by experience and he knew by faith, as all Christians do. This glory is to be revealed on a large scale and it will, be, it will far outweigh the sufferings of this present time. This verse also tells us something really important about, I would say, Christianity's approach to suffering. The, the Lord does not discount our suffering, brothers and sisters. He doesn't just set it to one side and say, try not to think about it. No, actually he says, I want you to calculate with your suffering. I want you to take it and put it on my scale. And then I want you to open my word and I want you to see the glory that is to be revealed, that is promised, and watch the scale tilt. That is how he deals with our suffering. Honestly, put it on the scale and let's show you, or let me show you, the Lord speaking, that in comparison with the weight of glory, it will feel light. It will feel as nothing. That's his promise. That's his promise, even if we don't feel that right now in our experience. So let's consider this glory together. And as we do that, I really want you to keep two things in mind. One is, this is a glory that Paul says shall be revealed in us. The words that he uses in the Greek are strong there. He means certain to be revealed. This is a glory that will be revealed because the Lord Jesus Christ has already been glorified. And if we are in Christ, again, we are partakers with him of everything, including his glory. It is certain to come because he has already been glorified. The second thing to keep in mind is this is a glory that will be revealed in us. Now, the Greek actually uses the preposition unto us. So the better translation, I think the ESV and the New American Standard have there, it is the glory that will be revealed to us. But as I hope to show you, this glory that will be revealed to us will also in part be revealed in us. In us. So Paul, he wants us to focus on the glory. He wants us to focus 
that it's going to be revealed to us, not just my glory, but this is a corporate idea, the glory of the church. The Lord is going to do something to the whole body of Christ, brothers and sisters, that we want to be thinking about. So how do we orient our thinking toward this glory and toward a corporate deliverance? Well, this glory is answered in two main ways, I would say, in this passage and in the the following passage in Romans 8. First of all, the glory to be revealed is, as he says in verse 19, a revealing of the sons of God. It's a revealing of the sons of God. And we'll talk about what that means. Secondly, it's a glory to be revealed in the restoration of creation. Creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. We'll see that in verses 20 through 22. And all of that will be revealed to our eyes one day. But for this morning, we want to consider this revealing, this unveiling, or what's been called, what is called in the Greek, the manifestation of the sons of God. And that's been misused. That title, manifestation of the sons of God, has been used by um, Christians who would call themselves perfectionists or who believe that it's possible to arrive at entire sanctification in this life, which the Scripture does not teach. And they would say that that is the manifestation of the sons of God. When you arrive at sinless perfection in this life, you will be fully manifested. It will be seen that you are the son because you won't have any more sin at that time. That's the argument. But the Scripture does not teach that. Rather, this manifestation of the sons of God is tied directly to the redemption of our bodies. That's what you see in verse 23, and that's the thrust of this passage. We, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, that is, the redemption of our body. So this is the manifestation of the sons of God, a a, a salvation that is complete, not just spirit or soul, which we already possess, but the salvation of your body. And it's called a revealing because all the sons of God today are not revealed to the physical eyes of everyone, right? We we don't know who all the children of God are with certainty. That identity is veiled. It's veiled for various reasons. But one day, this true identity of all the sons will be unveiled for all to see. And I thought, as I was preparing for this, I was struggling with how to present this because there is a lot of material and um, a lot of this material is a discussion of eschatology, which is a a study of last things. Um, There's various interpretations on those last things. But I'm just going to try and stay to the things that we know and try to give you what I believe the Scripture holds forth as a description of these Uh, this unveiling of the sons of God. And it coincides with what is called the day of the Lord. So what I'd like to do is just sketch out for you or give you a series of vignettes, of scenes of this day of the Lord, which is when this final reveal happens. And again, this is not intended to be a deep dive into eschatology. Um, I'm just going to simply try to present the statements of Scripture as I see them working together and then encourage you all to do your own deep study to come to your own conclusions about these things. So, first of all, what is the day of the Lord? Well, the day of the Lord in Scripture is described several times. It's a day of crisis. Um, The word in Greek, krisis, crisis in English, is the word for judgment. It's a day when the Lord brings judgment by humbling the pride of all men so that he alone is exalted in that day. It's a day of destruction for one group of people, which is the ungodly, the wicked, the unbelieving, to demonstrate that he alone is the just one. And it's also a day of chastening, um, spanking, if you will, for the godly, for the sons of God, in order to purify them, in order to remind them that God is holy and yet merciful toward his own because he doesn't destroy them, he doesn't consume them. And there's many days of the Lord in Scripture. There's days of the Lord such as the captivity of Israel by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. There's another captivity which is described as a day of the Lord when Judah is carried off to Babylon in 586. 
There's a day of the Lord that came in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was sacked and many Jews lost their lives. And in fact, a large percentage of the population died and very few escaped with their lives. But all of those days of the Lord in Scripture lead up to one final day of the Lord, which is far more terrible than all of the others combined together. And God describes this day of the Lord as coming like a thief in the night. Now that's interesting because there are signs that precede His coming. And there are examples like the chaos and commotion in the heavens where the sun stops shining and the moon stops shining and the stars fall. There's earthquakes and rumors of wars. There's many things that are said to take place before that day. But at the same time, nobody knows the precise day or hour when he comes. He will still come as a thief in the night, especially for those who are not looking for him. They will be completely surprised by that day. But the Lord tells us to look and to wait for that day expectantly. In fact, that has been his call to every generation since the first century church, which is very interesting because that means of necessity that we must concede that it's possible that all of these signs that anticipate his second coming have already been fulfilled because that is the only way that he could come at any time and for us to be watchful for him. If we knew that certain signs had not been fulfilled for certain, then we could say with certainty the Lord cannot come yet and that violates the call of Scripture to watch and to be ready at all times. So here's a description of how he comes. When he comes, he will come in the same way that he left this earth. In Acts chapter 1, when the Lord departed from his disciples, he, the Scripture says, was carried up in a cloud. The cloud received him out of their sight. And the men of Galilee, his disciples, are standing there looking up, and these two other men in white apparel bright white apparel, angels. Say, men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And that is exactly what the Lord Jesus says of himself when he will come. In Mark 13, verse 24, it says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation describes this event as a worldwide event that will be seen by everybody. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 7, John speaking to the seven churches in Asia says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Every eye will see him. This will be a global event. And he comes, we're told, not by himself. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Starting in verse 11, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. By the way, when you see the word white in Scripture with regard to um, the Lord, heaven, Uh, saints, angels, that word is not just the word for the color white, it's the word that means brilliant, dazzling light. He comes on a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in, the, in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And look at verse 14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white, there's that same word for dazzling again, and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Loved ones, this is a picture of the Lord Jesus coming to earth in his second advent. 
this day of the Lord is being described here where the Lord Jesus comes triumphant and he doesn't only come by himself. He comes, as verse 14 says, with the armies in heaven. And there's some question, what does that mean? Does that mean the angels? Because other passages in Scripture describes that he comes with the angels. And there's others that describe that he comes with his saints. I think the answer is both. He comes with both. All of the armies of heaven come with him, and all of the armies are clothed in this fine linen. The saints, that is, the souls of those who are in heaven, there's no bodies in heaven, right? It's the souls. They're clothed in white. They are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And the other group uh, of creation that's in heaven that has this white clothing, brilliant white clothing, is the angels. The angels. So they all come back with him to the earth. This is the Lord Jesus in judgment mode. And this appearance, we know something of from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Turn there with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse um, 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. So stop there for just a moment. This is not a quiet event. This is not a sneaking in and sneaking out event. This is a loud announcement of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with his heavenly host. And they are coming back to the earth. And it says that the dead will rise first. The dead will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, or those who are living, he's talking about those who are living in Christ and remaining till that day, they're still alive, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. What's happening here is the dead in Christ are rising. Remember, the Armies of heaven come back. Part of the armies is the souls of the believers. They come back to be reunited with their bodies when the Lord resurrects them from the dead. They meet the Lord in the air. This is the so-called rapture. That's the word that's taken from the Greek word here that's translated in the New King James, caught up in verse 17. It also means to seize upon or the snatching away. This is when the church is raised up together to be with Christ, to meet with him in the air. The dead are reunited with their bodies, and something else happens at the same time. Just listen to this, just to help fill out this picture, I believe. This is Matthew 24, starting in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So this, I believe, connects with the First Thessalonians 4 passage in the, and the snatching away. It's the angels who actually snatch us away and bring us to the Lord himself. Now, as this is happening or simultaneous with this event, we also have the account from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we read this morning in our corporate reading, and I would just direct your attention to verse 50. Paul says this, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. In other words, you're not fit in your present condition to be in the presence of the Lord. Something has to happen. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 
And then he goes on to say, this corruptible, that is our body in its current form, will put on incorruption. In fact, backing up to verse 42, we see all of the ways that the body is going to be glorified. This corrupted body, which is sown in corruption, in other words, it goes into the ground in its current form, a corrupted, sinful body, is going to be raised in incorruption, unable to be corrupted or die. It was sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. The opposite of dishonor would be honor. It's raised in honor. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. The first body is fashioned after Adam. The new body we will receive is fashioned after the image of the heavenly man, verse 49. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is a great transformation that will take place in us, brothers and sisters. Our bodies will be glorified instantaneously. In the twinkling of an eye, in a moment, in a flash, all of the bodies of the saints, those who were dead and have been raised, those who are still alive and go to meet the Lord in the air with all of the rest of the saints and the angels, they will be glorified in a moment. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So our, our bodies will be conformed, be made like his. That doesn't mean that we will be deified. We will not become gods, but we will become like him in our bodies. That is, we will have bodies that cannot die. We will have bodies that are raised with honor and that are given honor. Bodies that um, are not weak anymore, but that have great power. Bodies that are spiritual bodies, though not phantom bodies. Remember the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That account is there. Those accounts are there for us for this reason, so that we would know something of what our future glorification will be like. Was Jesus recognizable to his disciples? Well, not immediately, but after he had revealed himself, he was. I think that there is a continuity between what goes into the ground and what comes up, even though what comes up will be very different. But I do believe that Scripture supports that we will be recognizable in our, our form, our new form. We won't have phantom or ghost bodies. The Lord Jesus had a body that could be felt and touched. Remember, he told Thomas, put your fingers in my side where the spear pierced him and, and feel, I'm not a ghost, I'm, I'm real, I have a body. He ate in their presence. This is the glorified body that we will be patterned after one day as well. So, brothers and sisters, this, this is one of the glories that will be revealed to us. It's a glory that will be revealed in us. We will be raised from the dead if we are not alive at the day when Christ returns, and our bodies will be transformed in a moment to be like his. But there's something else going on in these scenes at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I would direct your attention to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 7, and the thought really begins in verse 3, but take a look with me at verse 7. Paul is saying, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, so this is, he's referring to the second advent, the same event. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you thought that when Christ comes back, he will come in blazing fire? That's what the scripture teaches. We're not talking about some little fireball in the sky. Um, we're talking about a raging fire that will fill all the heavens. Let me just um, maybe put it this way. We know something of our sun, 93 million miles from the earth, that God has positioned it just at the right distance for us so that we receive warmth and life and energy from the sun. 
What would happen if you brought that sun all the way to the upper crust of our atmosphere and you placed it right next to our earth? We would be incinerated. You cannot imagine the fireball and the blaze that that would produce. Maybe that gives some approximation to what is going to happen when the Lord Jesus comes back. I think the prophet Ezekiel may have had um, a vision of what this final day of the Lord looks like. At the very beginning of his book in Ezekiel 1.4, listen to what he says. Then I looked, this is in his vision, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself. And brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Um, we cannot imagine what this is going to look like. Um, but here's what we do know. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, When Christ who is our life appears, <clears throat> then you also will appear with him in glory. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which He called you by our gospel, listen to this, for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This glory, loved ones, that we will see and the glory that we will be glorified with is Christ's very glory. And we have to reason, I think, at least I am, if Christ is coming with his angels and the heavenly host in a flaming fire that surrounds the earth, and he calls his church to himself, gathers them, gathers them together to himself with the angels in the air, to appear with him in glory, to be with him, then that tells us something very important about this glory that is to be revealed. We won't be consumed by the glory of Jesus Christ. We will be in it with him, but we will not be consumed by it. We will be protected by his glory. Um, this is why glorification is so essential at the end of our Christian experience on this earth. Because Christ is coming back in great glory. And anyone who is not in a fit state, whose bodies are not prepared to experience that kind of glory, will not be able to stand before the presence of the Lord. They will be burned up instantly. We, loved ones, however, will pass through the fires of judgment unscathed. You know, when we read about Daniel, we were in Daniel on Wednesday night in our midweek Bible study, and we read about the fiery furnace that Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were placed into by a, a raging, angry King Nebuchadnezzar. And we're told that Nebuchadnezzar was astonished when he looked at that fiery furnace, heated seven times its normal heat. After he, his servants had thrown those uh, three friends into the furnace, he looked and he didn't see three, but he saw four in the furnace. One who was described like the Son of Man was standing with them. And the friends were not hurt. They weren't even scathed by the flame. They didn't even have the smell of smoke on their bodies when they were pulled out. I think that picture in Daniel may be a, a small taste of the glory that is going to be revealed when Christ comes back in flaming fire. And he will be standing with his whole church and his church will not be consumed. Praise God. But all those who are wicked, just like Nebuchadnezzar's servants who threw those three faithful in, will be consumed. This is the day of the Lord. The angels gather the godly, the, the righteous, those who have been justified because they trust in Jesus Christ alone for their righteousness. Loved ones, that's what righteous means if you're unclear about that. It's not that you've done enough good works to earn favor with God. No, our best works are filth to God. We don't have good works before him. Only his son does. Those are the only works he accepts. So if you trust in his son, you are justified. You are declared right and you will stand with him unscathed in the judgment. 
Now, the flip side of what happens with the angels gathering the elect into the air to a position of safety in the midst of fire is they also gather the wicked for judgment. Mark 13, verse 40. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, the Lord is giving an analogy. Tares and wheat grow up together to a certain point, and then the tares are separated and burned. He says, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What's happening here is the Lord is making a separation between one group of people and another. The net has been cast and has pulled up all kinds of fish, if you will. Good fish and bad fish. And he's taking this opportunity now to separate the good from the bad, the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats, the true from the false believer. It's the Lord himself who makes this separation. He uses the angels, but it's the Lord who does this in the last day. And how does he do it? He does it by the fires of his judgment. Those who are natural in their nature, who are fleshly, uh, who are earthly, in other words, they've never been born again, they're just sons of Adam, they will be consumed as fire consumes chaff. But those who are supernatural, those who are born again, those who are spiritual and heavenly and heavenly minded, they will be the ones who withstand the glory of God. The same Son of Righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be a burning oven to one group and He will have healing in His wings for the other group. They will be as those who are shining in the sun, left shining in the sun. And Perhaps this gathering of the angels is just another way of describing the final judgment that we have in different vignettes in the Scripture. I want you to listen to how John the Baptist prophesies of this separation that the Lord makes in the last day. He says this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. His winnowing fan, this is referring to Jesus Christ's winnowing fan, is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever winnowed anything. I certainly haven't. <laughs> but a winnower is one who sends a draft of air through grain when he is trying to separate the good part, the, the head, the kernel, from the chaff, which is the throwaway, the straw. And that winnowing, we're told, is carried out by the angels. Interestingly enough, the angels are also called God's spirits. They're also spirits of fire. So this Wind, which is the same word for spirit in the Hebrew and translated in the Greek, these winds of the Lord, these angels, will blow and separate one group from the other, the righteous from the wicked. And by the way, it's those who are carried away like the chaff who are judged. Those who are left behind in that analogy are the righteous, the wheat, which is then gathered and put into the barn. The analogy that's given in Scripture of this day of the Lord that really helps us in this, in this instance is we're told it's like Noah's day, the great flood. What happened in Noah's day? Well, there was warning. There were signs. Noah was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. He was building an ark, a big boat in the desert where it had not rained. I mean, talk about a sign. And he probably was doing that for the better part of 100 years warning people of the wrath to come. But only eight got on board that boat. Those to whom the Lord was gracious. Noah had found favor in the eyes of the Lord, not because of anything he did. He was a wretch, just like you and me, a sinner. But God had mercy on him and on his family. Brought them into the boat, into that ark, and then the floods came and swept away the ungodly. You see the connection? It's the same thing that is going to be happened, happening in the final day, except it won't be a flood of water. It'll be a flood of fire. 
that the Lord will bring upon this earth. Yeah. John the Baptist says that the wheat will be gathered into the barn. Jesus Christ is the barn. He's that ark that was typed in the Old Testament where alone the saints will be safe. Where we will be spared the fires of judgment to come. So here's another of the glories to be revealed in this last day. We will be spared the judgment of condemnation. We will be spared by His grace. Brothers and sisters, this is where we started in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There never will be condemnation for you ever again. Because Jesus has paid for all your sins at the cross. That was the crisis. That was the judgment. That was the day, another day of the Lord which came upon this earth when Jesus himself bore our sins and the wrath of God was poured out on him. If you trust in Christ, your day of the Lord has already come in that sense. Your judgment has been paid in full by Jesus at that cross. Now, Paul does say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that all those who are building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, workers of Christ, you and me, we will also pass through a fire of judgment. But it's not a judgment of condemnation. It's a judgment of rewards. All of those works that we do, that we build upon the foundation of Christ, that are works of the flesh, they're described as wood, hay, and stubble. Those are the things that are going to get burned up. But the works that are the works of the Lord that he does through us, through the Spirit of God, those are the precious building materials that will last. And those who build with the flesh, at least in part, he says, their works are going to be burned up, but they will be saved, though as by fire. So yes, there is a fire that comes for all, but I hope you see, we are sheltered and protected by the very glory of God that will be revealed in us, whereas the wicked will not. Hmm. I think the ungodly, um, from their perspective, it's important to recognize something of what they will see as well. We will see that every true son of God is revealed. We will see the, the righteous, we will see the wicked. We will rejoice as the noonday sun in all of the righteous. The ungodly will see that same unveiling, but they won't rejoice in that day. They will look on those whom they tormented and those whom they persecuted and that will become a source of torment and everlasting shame for them in the day that Jesus Christ glorifies those whom they previously maligned. The people that they considered fools in this life for trusting in Jesus Christ alone and for taking a stand for holiness and against wickedness when they see that those righteous are vindicated by God and dressed in honor, when they are dressed in shame and dishonor, they will not be pleased. Yes, they will be forced to their knees. They will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ and they will acknowledge that He is Lord to the glory of God. They will make that confession with their mouths. But they will hate Him for it. That's why there is said to be wailing and gnashing of teeth there won't be repentance from the wicked even in that day. Their hearts will continue to be hard. There is another glory that is to be revealed in us, and that is a special honor of judging the world and angels with Jesus Christ. In the midst of all these scenes that we're maybe picturing in our minds, I want you to think back to this rapture when the world is taken uh, the church is taken out of the world or lifted up to meet the Lord Jesus and the armies of heaven in the air. And there are some who teach that uh, the Lord takes, them, takes the church out of the world for a time. Um, I don't see that in the Scripture. In fact, I was really helped and blessed by Dr. R.C. Sproul's insight about this particular event of the rapture, so-called, um, the snatching away, the catching up with the Lord Jesus, and he, he said it's important to understand that this culture that, was, um, that Paul was writing to in the Thessalonian church, they were part of the Roman Empire. They understood something of Roman conquest. And when the Romans would um, uh, enter new territories to take 
conquest, to, to, to take captives and to gain new territory. Um, they would hold up a standard, or many standards, flags that would bear the letters SPQR on their banners. Senatus Populus K. Romanus. It means the Senate and the people of Rome together. And the idea was that military victories for the Romans were not just for the politicians, but they were also for the citizens of Rome, for all the citizens, for the common people as well as for the elites. And so as Rome would bring captives in, or the Roman army would bring captives in to Rome, before they entered the city, they would camp outside the city, and they would send a messenger into the city to the Senate to alert them and to the people that they had conquered a new people, a new territory. And the citizens, actually what happens next is a trumpet sounds. They would sound a trumpet. And then the citizens of Rome would go out to meet the Roman army and join in the triumphal procession together as they all come into the city together. So the idea in this snatching away is that the church is received by the Lord Jesus to himself, not to be taken out of the world, but to participate with him in his triumphal return to the earth. And the thrust of that togetherness when they come back is to judge the captives, to judge the captives, to judge the wicked altogether. Listen to how Jude puts this in his 14th and 15th verses of his one chapter. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, and he's referring to ungodly men, also saying, behold, The Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all. Um, The translation for ten thousands is ten thousand times ten thousand, which would be a hundred million. Or it's just a way of saying an innumerable company. The Lord comes with this innumerable company of saints to execute judgment on all. On all who? The ungodly. To convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So there is a a special honor that will be accorded to the church to sit as judges with Christ, with him, on his throne to judge the world and the angels who fell from their first estate. And then finally, I'd ask if you turn back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 just one more time. There is a, a final glory, or maybe I would, I would just say a most important glory of all of these glories that we have to recognize, and we, we've been touching on it but haven't called it out explicitly to this point, which is this in verse 9, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. Paul says these, referring to those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Um, He's saying they will be punished with everlasting destruction from literally from the face of the Lord. They will know that it's the Lord who brings that judgment upon them, in other words. When He comes, verse 10, in that day to be glorified in His saints and note this, to be admired among all those who believe. Because our testimony among you was believed, admired. That means wonder, awe, adoration, praise, thanksgiving. In other words, two things are going to happen when we are brought into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are going to be transformed. Our bodies will be fashioned like his glorious body so that we can stand with him in glory. And when we see him, we will admire him. Brothers and sisters, as glorious as our bodies will be made in that day, we will not be looking at ourselves and the glory and saying, look at me. We're going to all look at Jesus Christ and our admiration, our awe, our wonder are going to be full for him. Our attention will be on the glory of Jesus This is the greatest glory that will be revealed on that last day, to see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. 
That will be our all-consuming desire and passion at that time and for all ages to come. There is a hymn that we're going to sing as we close called The Sands of Time Are Sinking. I don't know that we've sung it together maybe ever, so we'll, we'll have to do it together. But the last verse of that hymn says this, The bride, it's the church, The bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he gives, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. John Piper said this about this so-called beatific vision, the, the final vision and unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ face to face, which, by the way, is how we're going to see God. God is a spirit. But the Lord Jesus has taken a body that remains in heaven to this day and that we will see face to face when he comes back and calls us to himself. Here's what Piper says. Our sight of God in Christ will be both immediate, <clears throat> in other words, there won't be any mediator between us and him, we'll see him directly, and continue to ripen forever. It will never become static and as Jonathan Edwards writes, never boring. After they have had the pleasure of beholding the face of God millions of ages, it will not grow a dull story. The relish of this thought will be as exquisite as ever. Isn't that good? Do we think about the glory of Jesus Christ and ponder it? We know that when he is revealed, we will see him as he is, for we shall be made like him. That's the only way that you will see the Lord and not be consumed. You must be transformed. And if you are in Christ, you will be transformed. We will see the face of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this has been the prayer of the saints throughout the ages. Listen to the testimony of a man who possibly known as the one who has endured the most extraordinary sufferings in Scripture next to the Lord Jesus Christ. This was our call to worship this morning, Job 19, 25 through 27. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Job yearned to see the glory of God. That was the counterbalance on the weight of sufferings that, he, that were so full for him. That's what weighted it correctly for Job. I want to see my Savior. And Job is seeing his Savior in his spirit in heaven now. That, that's called the intermediate state, by the way. That, that's going to happen immediately as you close your eyes in death in this world. You will open them in life in heaven. Revelation 5 and 7 are good places to go if you want to see what that looks like. But we're talking here about the day of the Lord when he will return and we will be reunited with our bodies if we don't already have a body at that day. And we will see him in our flesh, like Job says, with our own eyes forevermore. That will never change. In, in that condition, we will remain with the Lord forever. 1 Thessalonians 4. David said the same thing. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. So, are you looking forward to that day, loved ones? How much do you think about that day? Perhaps not a lot prior to recently. That's okay. Let's start thinking about that day more. Are you mindful and, and, and do you want the glory of Jesus Christ not only in your ultimate glorification, but in the glorification of the church, in the body? Do you think of your brothers and sisters sitting all around you who will also be glorified? And, and how does that change our perspective on how we live today and how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ? Those who are bought with the precious blood of the Lamb of God precious to him. And also, how does this knowledge of the imminence of the great day of the Lord, a day unlike any other, uh, by the way, 
I think that is the ultimate tribulation. It is the Lord himself when he comes. I don't see anything else in Scripture that excels that kind of tribulation where the Lord himself comes to settle all accounts at the end. That is the day of all days. And how should that affect the, the way that we live today in, in all godliness and, and holiness? Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, right? That day is coming like a freight train. And if we feel that urgency in our hearts, Lord, help us to feel that so that we share the gospel in our words and in our lives. These are the things that we are to consider, brothers and sisters. These are the things that we are to reckon and meditate on because these will be the things that grow our faith, grow our assurance of salvation, give us the strength to endure all the trials and tribulations of this life as the Lord prepares us for the great day of the Lord and for the age to come. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe of you. There is none like you in heaven or in earth. Father, we marvel at your judgments. We marvel at your wisdom. We marvel, Lord, at your ways, which are so much higher than our ways. Father, thank you for what you have revealed to us about your second coming in the person of Christ. Thank you, Father, for your promise to save us to the uttermost, not to leave us in our current condition, but to redeem us all the way, and that you will afford us so many glories that we don't deserve. Father, what can we say but thank you? May our lives be poured out before you as living sacrifices. Help us, Lord. Help us this week as we face new temptations or old temptations coming uh, again. Help us, Father, to reckon these things, that the weight of glory would be so exceedingly great in our minds that, Father, we would live for you now, that we would say no to sin because you've given us that ability. Father, orient our minds correctly. Orient our hearts toward you. Lord, may we love you supremely and love the brethren. Love our neighbor as ourself. Show compassion on those around us who are lost just as we were. Father, we have the words of eternal life because you've given them to us. Where else can we possibly turn? Use us, Lord, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.